Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to the Healthy Gut Podcast with Rebecca Coombs, the place where you can learn how to achieve a happy, healthy gut. Here's what's coming up on today's show. On today's episode, episode 19 of the Healthy Gut Podcast, I'm joined by Dr. Whitney Hayes, who is a naturopathic physician and licensed acupuncturist. And an area that she has a great passion for is treating naturopathic gastroenterology. She loves treating irritable bowel syndrome, or IBS as it's known, and all the related things that come along with that diagnosis, as well as many other digestive disorders such as Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. One particular cause of IBS is SIBO, and she has helped many patients with this condition. And she loves focusing on treating children with digestive illnesses as well. In her free time, she enjoys spending time with her wife and her two daughters, and she enjoys hiking with their dog, backpacking, cross-country skiing, gardening, and cooking wonderful meals with friends. Dr. Whitney Hayes talks about her passion for using the tools of both Eastern and Western medicine in her treatment of patients with IBS and SIBO. And she tells us a very interesting story about how her journey was perhaps not the most typical one in becoming a naturopathic physician. And we talk about the different ways that she helps her patients get back to good gut health using a combination of acupuncture, naturopathic supplements and lifestyle suggestions. So I hope you enjoy today's episode with Dr. Whitney Hayes. Welcome to the show, Dr. Whitney Hayes. It's so great to have you here today. Thank you for having me, Rebecca. My pleasure. Now, as I always start off with my interviews, I'd love to hear the story as to why you trained to be a naturopathic doctor. Like what was your journey to get to where you are today? Well, it's, uh, I guess, a different story than I think a lot of people have. I feel like, you know, a lot of my colleagues and friends in school, you know, found their healing journey through, you know, uh, their own illness or um, someone that they loved. But I, I found mine through, I guess, a calling I, um, that I tried to avoid for a long time. And I, uh, my mother's side of my family every one of them is a doctor or a nurse or a pharmacist or some sort of, you know, somebody in the medical profession. And so for a long time, I didn't want to be in medicine. And I tried to, you know, go into to other routes. I started college and um, I always had a knack for science. So I naturally gravitated towards, you know, uh, biology and I then declared pre-med which I said I never would and then I changed it and then I um, went on to shift to get a finally get a degree in botany with a chemistry minor and so I I sort of found my love of plants 
And um, so I thought, oh, I'm going to be a botanist. I'm going to, you know, go on to get my PhD in botany, and and uh, that's what I'm going to do with my life. And somehow I found my way out to Portland, Oregon. Uh, I'm originally from Arkansas, and so a long way from where I was born and raised. And came out here and did a little soul searching and somehow ended up going to Peace Corps. And while I was in Peace Corps, that's actually how I found naturopathic medicine, which seems very bizarre. I um, went to Peace Corps in Morocco and I had a, a friend come visit me there who was actually in acupuncture school at the time. And, you know, I said, uh, you know, I'm, part of the reason that I went to Peace Corps was to sort of find myself, I think, uh, how a lot of, you know, young 20-somethings do. And so I, um, and I told her that I just felt further from that truth after being there for, you know, the year that I'd been there. And she said, you know what? You should become a naturopathic doctor. And I said, what in the world's a naturopathic doctor? I'd never heard of one. So she told me a little bit about it. And and she left, came back to Portland, and I was still there. And I started looking into it while I was there. And I just, I was so drawn to it. And I said, wow, this is exactly how I live my life, how I want to live my life. And so I came back to Portland after my uh, tour in Peace Corps and applied to NCNM, now NUNM, and... I had all the prerequisites done because I had all of the, you know, the biology and the botany and it just, it all just was initially easy and fell into place and it just seemed like the right thing to do. It's like, I didn't even have to think about it. And, you know, the first day of orientation, I, you know, I looked around and I was like, I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be. And so that's kind of how it all started, I guess. What a wonderful feeling that must have been for you to feel like you'd you know, you'd come to where you should be. That must have been great. Yeah, yeah. It it uh, it was good to finally figure out what I wanted to do with my life and and the direction that I wanted to go. I didn't know, certainly didn't know where it was, where it was going to take me, but it, uh, it it was good to good to find that calling, even mm. though I tried to avoid it for so long, which is, I guess, ironic. I told yeah. myself I told myself I'd never be a doctor, but I think it was because the only doctors I had ever known were, and not that they're bad, but medical doctors and just, you know, your standard doctor that prescribes medications and, and, you know, uh, doesn't really do much else. And it just didn't feel right to me. And I, that, that's part of why I changed my, uh, you know, changed, changed my, changed from pre-med. And, um, you know, when I, when I found naturopathic medicine, it just, it just felt so right. Mm, and I'm sure, uh, the people of Portland and wherever else you may find yourself living in the future will be eternally grateful for, <laughs> for you finding naturopathic medicine. <laughs> I sure hope so. <laughs> yeah. Um, so one of the things that you treat is, uh, or we work with people that identify as having irritable bowel syndrome. Um, can you talk to me a little bit about uh, those types of people and, and obviously what IBS is for those listeners that may not um, know much about it or, or might think that they have it themselves but want a little bit more explanation of, of what it is and, and as well what can cause IBS. Well, I mean, you know, if you go to a standard, you know, gastroenterologist or medical doctor, they'll, 
they'll tell you that, you know, IBS is a, a diagnosis of exclusion and it's a functional disorder and they don't really know what causes it. Well, I mean, we have learned um, over the, you know, the, the last bit of years that SIBO is probably one of the largest causes of IBS. It's not the only cause, but, you know, probably upwards of 70% of people that have SIBO, you know, that, that have IBS, it's caused by SIBO. And so, um, you know, that, that bacterial overgrowth is, is a big part of, um, you know, most cases of IBS. And, um, you know, I think a lot of people that have IBS, they, you know, they feel like it's a garbage diagnosis and that it's, you know, because it's a functional disorder that you can't really figure out or find, um, you know, frank lesions and, and, you know, they, they've had the whole gamut of workup from their gastroenterologist and, you know, they've had colonoscopies and endoscopies and, um, you know, all kinds of blood work and everything is normal. And they say, well, why don't I feel normal? And so it gets to be, you know, really frustrating, I think, from a patient's standpoint, because for a long time, um, you know, many doctors said, well, we can't find anything wrong with you. You must be stressed out. You're anxious. You know, don't be so stressed out. You know, it's kind of all in your head is what they tell people. And that just, you know, that, that nobody wants to be told that it's all in their head. So, um, you know, I think that when we figured out that SIBO is a big cause of IBS, that it, it, it sort of gives the power back to the patient and, and makes them see that, well, it's not all in their head. It's not, it's not just, you know, because they're stressed out that their gut's a wreck. So, you know, I, I think it's, there's, we definitely still have a lot to learn and there's a lot we're going to figure out over time, but it's a, it's a good step in the right direction. Mm, it is. I recently met somebody who um, just in passing said to me, oh gosh, I, I just have, you know, I have, I'm just that person that always has gut problems. And I recommended that she go and do the, um, Dr. Narala Jacoby here in Australia has a free online quiz you can do on her website that um, gives you an indication of the likelihood of SIBO. It's not a diagnosis, but it it's a good precursor to then going and doing the SIBO breath test. And I said to this lady, why don't you go and do that quiz? And then um, if it indicates it's likely that you've got SIBO, at least then you can go and find a practitioner who treats SIBO, that knows SIBO, and that you could then do, go and do the formal testing. And I had an email from her just yesterday saying, Oh my gosh, Rebecca, um, my numbers were off the charts. Uh, she's both, she's got, she's more hydrogen dominant than methane, but she's still got quite a lot of methane present. And she said, I finally have an answer as to what has been going wrong. And then she sent me an email not long after that saying, why do no doctors know about this? <laughs> and why wasn't I told about this for so many years if this is what was the cause of my IBS? So it's definitely, uh, I think what you say, it's great. Yeah, it's really empowering for patients to be able to have some answers. It is, definitely. So can we talk about your experience with treating SIBO? Who are the types of people that come into your practice and um, and what's your approach to treating this condition? Um, well, I, I definitely have a SIBO-heavy patient population. I would say probably 75 to 80% of the patients that I see now are, um, you know, likely have SIBO. If they haven't already been diagnosed, then, then I usually diagnose them. So, 
you know, I would definitely say that the majority of people that I do SIBO tests on, you know, 90% of them probably have a positive uh, breath test. Um, so, you know, that's, that's a big part of my patient population. And, um, I mean, they find me in various different ways, I suppose. Um, a lot of, a lot of different referrals and, and whatnot, but, you know, uh, as with IBS and SIBO, you know, many people also have, uh, a lot of mental, emotional type issues like anxiety and depression and, and things like that. And they just, they struggle with their mood a lot. And so, you know, sometimes people will come in, you know, for that reason and not really realize that they might have SIBO as well. Cause maybe the, the mental emotional aspect is just sort of overcasting some of what they feel like is more of a minor digestive disturbance. Um, same with, you know, another uh, issue, uh, could be related back to the gut or, you know, a lot of skin issues. I would say nine out of 10 of my SIBO patients have some related skin issue. So, you know, whether it's acne or psoriasis or eczema or rosacea, um, there's almost, almost all of them have some sort of skin issue that's flared up at one point in time, uh, in their life. So, and um, how many of them also have things like restless leg syndrome? Yeah, um, some. I wouldn't say that it's a huge percentage of people that I see that have restless leg syndrome, but I, I know there's a correlation. But it's it's not it's not a big complaint that people come in with, at least in my practice. Mm. Now it's interesting that um, so many of your patients have skin issues or skin disorders, but um, uh, yeah, it, it's funny who I, I talk to. A lot of people, obviously, in the SIBO world, and there's those of us, and I was one that had huge amounts of restless leg syndrome, um, but also I had the skin problems as well. I, I had the full gamut. <laughs> I had it. You name it, I had it. Um, so when someone comes in um, and you suspect SIBO, what do you do to um, – what do you do with them then? Well, if they haven't already been diagnosed, because I, I, I definitely have a good percentage of, of patients more and more that, that, you know, they've seen other providers that have diagnosed them with SIBO and, um, you know, maybe they've had some success with treatment and, or maybe not, and they're maybe seeking a, a second opinion or the provider set, you know, sent them to me as, you know, they, they didn't, they felt like they exhausted the things that they knew. Um, so I've, I've definitely, uh, as I've, you know, started to treat more and more SIBO over the years. Um, I, I'm getting more and more provider referrals and, and things like that. So, um, yeah, so I, you know, I, I definitely see a lot of that. Yeah. And so do you, if they, if they have been diagnosed with treatment, what's your approach? Is it um, diet? Is it supplements? Do you use antibiotics? Um, yeah. How do you go about actually reducing those SIBO numbers? Yeah. So I, um, I mean, I, I, I utilize all the treatments with people, um, especially if they've tried, you know, various different ones and had, haven't had success. So, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll go through the, the gamut sometimes with some patients, um, and, you know, SIBO for many people is a chronic recurrent condition, um, that needs quite a bit of management. So, you know, it's, it's, it's not often the case where it's one and done that you treat them and they're better for good. 
Um, you know, that's the, I think, tricky part with, with IBS and SIBO especially. So, you know, my, you know, if they haven't been diagnosed with SIBO already, I'll obviously do a three hour lactulose breath test on them and, you know, see if it comes back positive. And most of the time it does. Um, and then we'll go from there. So then, you know, they come in for their visit to go over the test results and I really just try and lay out the treatment options. So I don't necessarily have a treatment option that I love the most. Um, I try and be the doctor that really just lays out the pros and cons of antibiotics versus herbs versus elemental diet and just, you know, I try not to choose for them because I think that that's a, a part of medicine where we've gone wrong over the years. Um, you know, I think for a long time in, in, in sort of standard Western medicine, a lot of people feel like the doctor knows all and the doctor has all the power and the doctor makes the decisions and the doctor prescribes the medicines. And that's not necessarily the best, you know, the, the, the best route to go because we don't know everything, you know, and that's why they call it medical practices that we're practicing every day to figure it out with patients. And so it's a journey with patients. And so in order to give them back the power, you know, I really try and empower them and educate them as best I can to make the decisions for themselves. Um, so, you know, that's, that's kind of how I sort of do it, I guess. And that's wonderful to hear because it, um, so many of us uh, can be so desperate for answers that we want somebody else to fix our problems. And it's really uh, lovely and encouraging to hear that your approach is, no, I want to help empower people to, to take back that ownership and control of their own health care. Because it really does feel good once you feel like you're more in control of your health, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um Talk to me a little bit around, um, so we've talked about the treatment options. Um, do you find that you need to rotate through treatment options or do you, you know, let's say someone's gone for uh, antibiotics, uh, if they've done one round of them and they've had some reduction but perhaps their numbers haven't reduced down to consider a, a negative SIBO result, what would your approach be with them then? Well, I mean, it, you know, it just really depends on how they've reacted to the first round of treatment. I mean, I, I definitely look at, and I think a lot of people that treat SIBO will look at the breath test results and, you know, the person's symptom picture um, and sort of correlate those together. And, you know, if someone's got hydrogen in the hundreds, one round of antibiotics or herbs is not going to do it. And so, you know, it, it might take multiple rounds and, um, you know, but I've also had people with, you know, I, I treat a fair amount of methane as well, which can be, you know, I'm sure you've learned from people incredibly hard to treat sometimes. And so, you know, we have to try and implore different tactics, um, so, you know, I, I definitely use a fair amount of antibiotics. I use a fair amount of herbs. Um, I try and utilize elemental diet as sort of a, a last resort with a lot of people. I, I, I do give them the option, and most people, you know, don't don't want to start there because it's obviously a really hard treatment to do. Um, but, you know, I, I 
sometimes we have to rotate through with with various different herbs and uh, different antibiotics. Um, and you know, if we're not getting a reduction in symptoms or reduction and or reduction in gas levels, you know, from breath test, then I start to look and see, well, what are we missing? Are there co-infections there that might be part of the picture? Um, is there is there a biofilm issue that's just making it not making us not be able to get to the you know get to them? Um, so, you know, that, that's the biofilm is, is something that I've started imploring in my practice a, a little more recently. I, I still am, uh, a little on the fence about biofilms. Um, but, uh, and why is that? It's certainly worth trying on those really, really, really hard to treat cases. So why, why would you say that you're on the film, on the fence with biofilms? Well, I, I definitely utilized in the past a lot of biofilm disruptors that are on the market, you know, supplemental type forms of biofilm disruptors on the market. And I just wasn't seeing, you know, I wasn't seeing a big improvement versus not using them. You know, I didn't see a real, real difference in using them or not using them. It just didn't seem to make a big difference. So, um, I guess that's why I was skeptical for a long time, um, but I have a couple of patients right now that I'm utilizing a newer biofilm disruptor um, that's unlike any of the states. It's a prescription-based one, so it's not just a standard one that's a supplemental one out on the market. So I'm I'm uh, still waiting and seeing, I guess, on, on that one. Mm. Do you have much uh, coming through your um, practice um, in terms of CFO, small intestinal fungal overgrowth? Uh, yeah, I, I definitely feel like there, that can be a component, you know, for a lot of people, as I was saying earlier, you know, when we're, we're get we're not getting things to budge, we're not getting the numbers come down, we're not getting the symptoms to improve, then I start looking, you know, is there, is there a fungal component to it? Because, you know, that could be a co-infection that's preventing, um, you know, symptoms to, to get better in the overgrowth to, um, you know, to reduce, uh, so, you know, it's certainly something that I take into consideration. It's, it's hard to definitively diagnose a fungal overgrowth. Um, I mean, you know, because part of it is, you know, there are certain amount of fungal elements in our digestive tract that are just normal flora. So it should be there, but it's just, once it gets over a certain threshold, that's when it can become problematic for people. So it's hard to determine what that threshold is, I think. And it's also, it's, it's hard to test for fungus. Um, and just stool testing in general is, is it's hard to really get a good read on, on, uh, what's going on in the digestive tract, you know, just from a stool sample. And so what's, what is your process out of interest to, um, like, are you ever able to say, is it more a case of you saying, I suspect it's a fungal overgrowth rather than I can categorically say it's a fungal overgrowth and is it based more on symptoms um, around suspecting it's fungal issues? Yeah, I mean, definitely take symptoms into consideration. Um, you know, sometimes we'll just try and presumptively treat. I, I do feel like that, uh, you know, a lot of the herbal antifungal routes are very effective. Um, you know, and some of the herbs overlap with SIBO treatments, you know, for bacteria. So, you know, sometimes just using the herbal treatments can be enough 
to, you know, help rid uh, a fungal overgrowth, but sometimes not, you know, there are some, some fungal overgrowths that are, um, you know, resistant to berberine and, you know, some of the standard SIBO herbs. Um, so sometimes you have to utilize, you know, other antifungals. Um, I've used some prescription ones as well, but, you know, I, I think that the, the, you know, natural herbal remedies and, and whatnot work just as well. Uh, so, you know, yeah, it's, it, a lot of it is, you know, based on symptoms. If people, you know, need a definitive, you know, test, I'll, I'll sometimes do a stool test and, you know, sometimes it'll come up with, with fungal overgrowth and sometimes it won't. So, you know, when I tell them that we may or may not find it in this stool sample. So, you know, I don't want you to get your hopes up that, you know, if it's not there, then that's not the case. And, you know, I'll also look at, uh, you know, other systems like, you know, if it's a woman, are there, you know, is she having, you know, vaginal yeast infections or, you know, I'll look at their tongue and, and see if there's, you know, any yeast in the mouth. Um, it's gotta be pretty bad for it to show up in the mouth, but, um, or, you know, do they struggle with athlete's foot or, um, you know, other fungal skin issues? Um, sometimes that can be indicative of if they've just kind of, you know, had a lot of fungal things that aren't necessarily gut related come up, then, you know, you might want to go that route. Mm, I think it's, it's, there's some really great tips there um, for the uh, patient uh, population of the SIBO community. And I know that because CFO has popped up in um, awareness of SIBO patients, quite often it's discussed vigorously in, um, on chat forums around, is it CFO? Is that what I have? So I think that's some really good tips um, that if someone is experiencing other fungal type infections, um, that it may indicate that there may be a CFO issue as well. Yeah, for sure. Around nutrition and food, this is such a big area for people because it's something that we do every single day and it's also something we can control. Um, what's your approach to the diet that somebody follows when you're treating them with SIBO? Uh, well, I um, definitely utilize diet when I'm, when I'm treating SIBO with people. I think it's an integral part of helping with maintenance and, um, you know, helping with just long-term control of chronic, you know, when people have chronic recurrent SIBO. So, um, you know, I kind of, one of the things that I'll, I'll sort of talk when I'm talking about diet to my patients in practice, I'll say, you know, and this is, this is, this is an example that I think a lot of people can understand. And I say, you know, SIBO is, having a recurrent chronic case of SIBO is like diabetes in a sense. And, you know, diabetics, you know, you, you have to manage diabetes. You, they can't just go out and eat whatever they want. They have to watch what they eat. And so it's, it's not really that different with SIBO. You can't probably just go out and eat whatever you want and eat a standard American diet or, I mean, nobody should be eating a standard American diet, but, um, so, you know, they, they're just going to have to be more careful than probably the majority of the population, which, you know, I, th I think is difficult for a lot of people because they feel weird or odd or they feel like they're missing out and, and all of those things. And so it really comes down to, you know, helping them change their mindset around not feeling like they're deprived and missing out on all these things that their friends and family are having um, it's, it's more about 
you know, focusing on the things that they can have and getting them to change their perspective um, and trying to, to focus on the positive sides of it, which, you know, I think can be difficult for a lot of people. It's, you know, lifestyle changes and especially diet and, and the foods that we eat, you know, there's, there's a lot of, a lot of things that stem from, you know, our childhood and, you know, emotional eating and, and, um, you know, all of these emotional ties that we have to certain foods and, you know, the social aspect to it. So it's, it's a difficult pattern to change for a lot of people. And, um, so it, 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 it takes time and it's not something that people are going to change overnight. And so I try and, you know, I try and tell people, you know, it's, this is going to take some time. This is, you didn't get here overnight. And so it's not going to change overnight. So you got to be patient with the process. Is there one type of diet um, that you uh, feel works better than the others, um, whether it be at the SIBO specific diet or the SCD diet or the fast track diet? Are, are there are there any that you seem to feel that, uh, yeah, have better results with people or, or even are easier to, to use? Well, I tend to gravitate towards, I, I certainly use Dr. Seebecker's uh, SIBO food guide, but I try and not have it be quite as restricted as every single thing on there. Um, so I, I, ha- I think I have a bent towards uh, the low FODMAP diet, and uh, I do think that it works fairly well for a lot of people. Um, obviously not everybody, but, you know, I, and I tell people, you know, you got to find a diet that's going to work for you, um, you know. Paleo might work for someone, but not another person. And the low FODMAP might work for some, but not another. So you just, you you have to find something that you resonate towards that feels like the right thing to do. Um, and so, you know, a, a lot of people, I'll, I'll, I'll sort of give them some guidelines around low FODMAP. Um, and then, you know, and I tell them initially, you know, when we make some diet changes, you know, it, it's, it's best to try and be on the more restricted end and then, you know, try and expand things over, you know, the course of one to three months and to see, you know, what high FODMAP things are, you know, really do aggravate you because, you know, there's some things on high FODMAP categories for some people that they do okay with and then others, you know, don't. And so, you know, that, so that's one of the things that I kind of stress for people. So, um, yeah, I mean, the, the diet piece is tricky and, you know, especially, and this is something I've, I think I've become a lot more aware of in the past couple of years, especially if they have a history of an eating disorder and that just, that really complicates things. And there's, there's a lot more people out there that have histories of eating disorders than I think people really realize. So it's definitely a, a question that I ask in, you know, one of my first intakes with patients, any history of eating disorder you know, if so, where are you at in that process? And, you know, I, I, the suggestions that I'm going to make, I don't want to re-trigger something if you're in a good place with it. And so I I think it's an important question to ask, um, patients and to, uh, you know, make sure that you're not going to cause more harm than good. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. 
It is music to my ears and I wish more practitioners and I hope any practitioners listening will incorporate this into their practice uh, because it is really important and I myself suffered from disordered eating in my teens and I remember thinking very clearly when I commenced the SIBO diet that this could be a very slippery slope back into disordered eating and in fact when I did I followed uh, Dr. Narala Jacoby's SIBO biphasic diet for six months and when I was coming off it and starting to reintroduce um, higher FODMAP foods and um, bring in more carbohydrate based foods I really struggled with it for a while because I had really enjoyed the strictness of the diet and I had a lot of fear that I had to overcome around reintroducing foods and I I realized that that wasn't healthy. I didn't want to be afraid of food because I'd been afraid of food when I was younger and had used that in a very negative way Um, and I think it is really important and I do see in the SIBO forums people talking about how dealing with SIBO has triggered disordered eating for them again after overcoming it which is which makes me sad that that's happening for them yeah I couldn't agree more yeah um do you how important do you think the the quality of the food is that we're eating in terms of uh achieving our ideal or optimal health or even just getting back to reasonable health well I mean I I I think it's it's pretty important you know because I I in the last year, I've, I've gotten a little bit more into genomic medicine and, um, you know, some of my tougher cases that I'm not, you know, I'm not able to, maybe we've hit a plateau and, and, you know, not able to really see more improvement when there should be. And so I've, I've, I've started to, I don't want to say dabble, but I've, I've started to utilize a, a little bit of, of genomic medicine and, figuring out, you know, are there, are there detox pathways that aren't working? Are there certain biochemical pathways that aren't working? And a lot of what that goes back to, uh, you know, when you're looking at, at, at that piece, those, those, you know, the toxic burden, uh, that people have is that we live in a lot more of a toxic world than a hundred years ago. And so, you know, being able to, decrease the toxic burden on our system is incredibly important. And, you know, it's obviously more important for some people that have a lot more genetic potential of abnormalities than others. So, you know, that's why a lot of people can get away with drinking a bunch of alcohol more than, you know, other people can. Um, But eventually it catches up with you. And so, you know, that's, that's definitely one piece of why I feel like the, the more that we can, you know, um, make sure the things that we're taking into our system are, you know, as clean as possible, then the better off, you know, our bodies will be and the less toxic burden that we're going to be putting into our system because there's, you know, there's a lot of toxicity out there and uh, you don't have to be all doom and gloom, but you know, there's, there's certainly ways in which to combat that and, and choices that we can make that, that, you know, will, will help us to be healthier. Um, but food's a great place to start is to, you know, not put a bunch of processed foods into your body and, um, you know, not overindulge in sugar and alcohol and, and things like that. You know, it's definitely a moderation that needs to happen with those things. What are some other toxins that 
people may be exposed to. Um, I think people would generally be aware of things like alcohol and sugar and processed foods. So they can see that those things may have a toxic impact. But are there other things that people um, may like to look at if they're not uh, able to overcome their SIBO perhaps as quickly as um, they had hoped? Well, I mean, you know, another piece that's in our water and foods and things like that are, you know, hormones, antibiotics, you know, in, in, in certain animal products and things like that. I mean, dairy products, I think if you're going to indulge in dairy products, you know, it should be in a moderate, mild to moderate amount. And it also should be of the organic variety. You know, that's, I think that dairy is definitely something that's inundated with a lot of, you know, antibiotics and, um, uh, hormones and things like that, that, uh, you know, we don't need to be taking more of that into our system. Um, you know, I think clean water, I mean, just making sure that you've got a good clean water source that you're, you're drinking from is, is really important. Um, you know, uh, computers and, and, uh, you know, all the, the radiation that, that, that happens from all the electronics in our world. I mean, that's definitely puts a toxic burden on our system. I'm not saying, you know, put the computer away, but, you know, maybe minimize the amount of time that you're able to be on it. And, um, you know, I mean, there's a lot of ways to combat our toxic world is, like I said, I'm not trying to be all doom and gloom, but, um, you know, just the, the more that you can, live as clean a lifestyle as possible, you know, the better off we'll all be. Um, but it's hard. It, 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 it's a hard thing. You know, I have, I have two little kids and, and I think about these things with them and, and, um, you know, I, I, I want them to have, have a healthy world to live in. And it is, I often think our poor bodies just haven't had a, t- haven't, haven't had a chance to catch up. Uh, we have evolved so quickly with the way we process and manufacture and grow food and um, how we live and the technology surrounding us. Um, our, our bodies at a cellular level must be just going, what the hell is happening out there? Like, this didn't used to be this way. Like, even 50 years ago, it wasn't like this. So it's, um, you know, things have changed enormously. Um, talking about, you know, we've talked about um, the, you know, identifying being unwell and changing your, the, what you eat and looking at toxic load, all of that relates to changing your lifestyle. And I know that that is something that you work with your patients um, around and you're, you're quite passionate about that. Can you share how you approach helping your patients to change these elements in their life, particularly if they've been living a certain way for many years? Well, I mean, you know, obviously it really depends on the person and I, I try and I try and do a really good job of, of really tailoring and individualizing treatments to, to people that's, that they're going to, giving them a treatment and suggestions that they're going to succeed with. So, you know, with, with some patients, I might have to start with really small baby steps, um, such as, you know, maybe we're going to cut gluten out of the diet. Um, and you know, for some people that's a big deal and others not, not a huge deal. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it really depends on the person as far as how, you know, how motivated they are, how willing they are to, you know, make changes and, and 
feel better. You know, obviously some people are that are really sick are really motivated to make big changes in their lives. Um, so, you know, you just have to really, one of the, there were several professors in, in, uh, naturopathic medical school that, uh, would use this term, meet the patient where they're at. And I still think about that to this day, um, to always just meet, meet the person where they're at, because if you try and give them a treatment plan that, you know, isn't anywhere near where they're at they're going to fail and they're going to feel like a failure and they're not going to come back to see you. So you have to really, you know, you have to take a good history and you have to, to really understand where they're at in their life and, and what they can do and what they can't do. That's so important because it isn't a one size fits all um, approach to healthcare. And uh, it's so funny that, you know, you talk about when people are sicker then they're more willing to make changes and and I was I was that person I was literally that like oh my god I can't do this anymore it has to change and so when I got my SIBO diagnosis I didn't even hesitate on stripping out foods from my diet and I stuck to it religiously because I was so desperate to feel better that I didn't care what I had to do I just wanted to get there <laughs> whereas if you'd you know if I'd been treated 10 years prior when things weren't as bad I would have been quite haphazard with it, I'm sure. <laughs> Absolutely. What are some key things around lifestyle um, that you that you feel work well? Um, maybe you know, perhaps sleep or stress management or movement. Are there particular areas that you encourage your um, patients to work on? Um, obviously, alongside the physical treatment of SIBO and and their nutrition. Yeah, um, I would definitely say that stress management is, is probably, you know, it's, it's probably up there with, you know, with diet. Um, the diet and stress management are probably the two lifestyle things that I try and focus most with people. Um, you know, a lot of people, I guess in Portland are, they're probably moving their body fairly decently, maybe sometimes in excess. And so sometimes you have to, you know, counterbalance that because if someone's, you know, kind of a workout fanatic and they're, um, you know, they're, they're training for marathons all the time and things like that, then that might not be the best thing for their body because it's putting their, you know, it's putting their nervous system in, in this sort of, um, you know, kind of fight or flight mode, you know, that sympathetic dominant fight or flight mode to where, you know, the cortisol is pumping and they're just, you know, it's just, it's like, you know, do this, you know, stress, 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 stress all the time. Um, and, you know, maybe they also have a job that's very stressful. And so their body's never getting to balance it out with that, that parasympathetic or that rest and digest, which is incredibly important. And so that, that's a piece where I feel like if you don't work on people with their stress management, if stress is a, you know, a huge component for them, then they're not going to get better. You could do all the SIBO treatments in the world and they're not going to get better if they're not resting and digesting. And, and if their digestive system doesn't know how to function properly, it's not going to figure it out when they're stressed out all the time. And so they, you know, they, they need to put their body in a state to where they can, um, you know, know how to, you know, be in that calm, relaxed state. And so, you know, it's not that they can never be stressed out again or, or be in that stressful sort of 
state. It's just you've got to find a good balance between the two um, because obviously that's that sympathetic mode of the nervous system is, is important. You know, it's important for, you know, uh, to drive us to, you know, do the things that we do in our lives. Um, but you just, you got to balance it out. And so I really try and help people figure out ways that realistically they can work into their lifestyle, um, you know, on a daily basis if possible, because that's, you know, that, that's what's going to be most effective. And, you know, whether that's, um, you know, a yoga routine or, you know, some sort of meditation or, um, you know, getting acupuncture fairly often, you know, is helpful. So it's, you know, you just gotta realistically find some, some techniques that they're actually going to utilize and not feel like a failure. Again, going back to that, you know, meeting the patient where they're at. And so they don't, and feel like they're failing at their treatment. Mm, and I, I'd love to talk more about acupuncture. I'll come to it in a moment. Um, well, how do you get people to even identify um, what some of their stresses may be in their life? Uh, is it, and is that um, sometimes an ish, um, a challenge just to even stop and pause and think of, okay, all these things are really st- having an impact on me. How do I, how do I even start? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, some people are very aware of the way that stress is a component in their life and other people just aren't. You know, sometimes I have to it takes several visits to kind of even get that, you know, I'll, I'll ask about it. And some people are like, yeah, I manage my stress great. It's fine. You know, I go running every day or, you know, something like that. Um, but it's, you know, they they might not realize even the daily stressors of how it's affecting their body. Um, you know, because some bodies can tolerate it better than others. So it's, 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 it's sometimes a difficult thing to get people to recognize. Mm. And um, sometimes people think that they do well on stress as well. I was one of those people. I used to pre-SIBO, pre-SIBO diagnosis, I should say, because I did have SIBO at this time. I'm certain of it. I used to say I was, I did my best work in a high pressure environment. But since going through my SIBO journey and completely transforming my lifestyle and really, and it's really interesting hearing you talk. I've taken a lot of the the toxins out of my diet. So, you know, I used to drink quite heavily. I I very rarely drink these days. Um, I ate a lot more processed food than I do now. I've changed my skincare and my makeup and my shampoo and conditioner and all of that stuff to be um, much lower in chemicals. Um, But my stress levels, I can't tolerate what I used to tolerate. Um, And I don't want to, which is really interesting because two years ago or three years ago, I thought that I was, uh, um, I did really, really well on it. And now I can see, I guess because I'm more in tune with my body, I can see the immediate ramifications of being in a high stress situation with me. And I've had to do a lot to change that, including the way I exercised. So I used to do really high energy, high impact, full on training, you know, do at least an hour session. I, you know, I wouldn't feel happy until I'd felt like I was almost going to vomit. Um, And now I do walking and yoga and meditation and much slower things that two years ago I would have laughed at me and said, 
that's ridiculous exercise. That's not exercise. <laughs> um, do you see that there's a role that exercise and movement plays in um, adding stress into the body? Can people be doing the wrong kind of exercise for their current health state? Uh, yeah, I mean, absolutely. If they're if they're not balancing it out, and like I said, it's it's all about the balance and finding that balance, which. I mean, Chinese medicine has a great way of, of sort of, you know, looking at that. It's like the yin and the yang. And, you know, that's exactly what that sympathetic and parasympathetic, you know, parts of our nervous system are is, you know, that, that sympathetic stress, you know, run from the tiger mode is that's the yang. And, you know, the flip side of that is the yin, which is the rest and digest in that parasympathetic state. You know, it's, it's the yin, the stillness, the, the quiet. And so, you know, you can't have one without the other. So, you you know, you have to find the balance in the, in the two um, so that they can coexist, you know, in, in a good way. And so, you know, absolutely, if people are, you know, really hardcore, you know, exercisers and, and they're just, like you were saying with you, you know, you, you, you exercise till you almost vomited. I mean, that, that's too much. You know, that's, that's not, it's not getting a good, not finding a good balance. So it's just, you know, it's not that you can't exercise because, you know, it's good to go for a run and it's, it's good to do, you know, some cardio, but you just don't want to do it in excess. Um, and then just, you know, trying to find that balance to, to bring it back around. You use, um, you combine Eastern and Western medicine in your treatments and you've mentioned acupuncture as, um, as an option for helping people calm down. Can you talk a little bit around how that would work with um, helping reduce stress and, and perhaps some of benefits of acupuncture for, if there are any, uh, for people with SIBO? Yeah, I mean, uh, acupuncture is, is a wonderful tool for a lot of people. Um, it, it's doesn't work for everybody. I've certainly had patients that I've done acupuncture on and they're like, I didn't feel a thing. <laughs> and then, you know, but I would say the majority of people, you know, they'll, they'll get up off the table after an acupuncture treatment and they're like, what did you just do? I feel so calm, so relaxed. My mind is quiet. Can I just do that every day? And, <laughs> you know, I say, well, you know, sure. <laughs> but, um, it's, it's, it's important because it's, it's, I think in, especially in, in, in SIBO and people that have IBS, you know, like I said earlier, um, that they tend to have a lot of, you know, anxiety, depression, you know, mood swings, just various different mood disorders like that, that they, they struggle with their mood a lot. And I think that acupuncture is a, in Chinese medicine is a good piece to, help to uh, balance that mental emotional peace and, and get them to calm and relax and, and, um, and, and not feel so stirred up. So it's, I think it's wonderful for, from that aspect. Um, I don't, I don't necessarily feel like it's going to cure someone's SIBO, especially if they have, you know, a, a disorder that goes back to, you know, maybe they had food poisoning 10 years ago and they've got uh, damage you know, to that motility piece. Um, it's probably not going to fix that, but it can certainly um, help to, you know, soothe the nervous system and, and kind of calm down, you know, if someone's in a more agitated state and, and whatnot. So I definitely think that it's, it's very complimentary. How does it actually work? I mean, 
I think most people would have a sense that there's um, uh, very thin kind of needles or I don't know if you even call them needles involved. In, um, but can you talk me through the practicalities of how it actually works and, and how one um, has an acupuncture treatment and what does one do if they're terrified of needles? Uh, well, I've certainly had patients that are terrified of needles and I've successfully done an acupuncture treatment on them and they've come back and, you know, they, they felt like it really helped. So it's, you know, I think just being, the needles are very different than like a blood draw needle. And that's usually the exposure that people have had to needles. And so they're terrified of needles because they've had bad experiences with blood draws. Um, it's, absolutely nothing like that you know that the the needles or pens are they're tiny you know and and there's definitely we have different sizes there are some larger than others but they're still not as large as a blood draw needle um so you know i i I, if someone's has some fear around it i just kind of you know talk them through it and and i have them lay on the table um i have them do a lot of deep breathing as i'm and i tell them what i'm doing and i tell them they can you know i can take them out or you know stop at any point. Um, so, you know, I try and give them the, the control in the situation. Um, but I, you know, I would say the majority of people, you know, it, it, how does it work? I, I don't think we really know. Science is never going to be able to prove how acupuncture fully works. It's, it's definitely an energetic medicine and, um, you know, it's working on various different energetic meridians to get the energy or the chi to move through the body And so, you know, to a lot of people, you can't really prove that and it's not very scientific. And so it must be crazy or it must be bunk. Um, but it works. I mean, it works. I've seen it work. I've, you know, I've, I've utilized it for years on my patients and, um, you know, I get acupuncture myself and it, it, there's just, there's, if you've never had acupuncture and, and you get it and you feel that sensation of, of chi moving through the body, you know, it's, it's not like anything that you, that most people will really understand until they, they get a treatment. And, um, it's just, it's a very calm, relaxed state. Um, but yeah, I mean, you can achieve in other ways, you know, through yoga practice and meditation and things like that, but it's, it's an energetic medicine like that. Hmm. It's funny. Um, one of my goals for this year is to incorporate acupuncture back into my um, into my regular life and my naturopath um, is in practice with her husband who's also a naturopath but he also um, has studied Chinese medicine so he does acupuncture so uh, it's my goal to start seeing him and uh, and do some work with him because I've done it a little bit in the past but I don't think I've ever done it enough to um, or you know I've had a few sort of acupuncture needles put in here and there when I've had a deep tissue massage, for instance, but I don't think I've ever had a proper acupuncture session. So I'm looking forward to experiencing it myself firsthand. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, it has a cumulative effect. So, you know, it's not it's not like you go in for one treatment and it's all good. You know, there's, there's a, a cumulative effect to it. So, you know, go in for several treatments and, and um, you know, really see the benefits of it that way. That's really good to know because uh, now I know I need to see Chris a couple of times, well, uh, you know, several times rather than just once and hope for the best. <laughs> um, Dr. Whitney Hayes, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the Healthy Gut Podcast today. If people would like to connect with you, how can they find you? 
Um, well, I have, uh, like I said, private practice here in Portland, Oregon at um, uh, integrative clinic called Kuan Yin Healing Arts Center. And um, I'm at the West Side location. Uh, there is an East Side location, but I practice at the West Side location. And so um, I'm, I see patients there. And then I also uh, do Skype consults. I'm not necessarily able to be someone's doctor via a Skype consult, but um, I certainly uh, am able to, you know, help help people with, um, you know, suggestions and, and kind of consult with them about, you know, uh, is the direction they're going the right direction or, you know, what kinds of things should they be looking for, um, for, you know, testing for SIBO and whatnot. And uh, people can schedule with me for that through uh, Dr. Seebecker's website on SIBOinfo.com. Uh, um, she has a link on there uh, with my name for that. Wonderful. Well, all of those links are in the show notes. Um, so if anybody wants to um, get them, they can head to the show notes. As I said, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks so much for spending um, your valuable time uh, and helping educate us SIBOers um, on all things SIBO. It's been a pleasure. Oh, I've, I've really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me, Rebecca. That was episode 19 of the Healthy Gut Podcast with Dr. Whitney Hayes. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you'd like to get the full transcription or even just the show notes with the links to be able to connect with Dr. Whitney Hayes, simply head to thehealthygut.co forward slash east west and you'll be able to download all of them from there now i absolutely love hearing your feedback so don't forget to leave a rating and review on itunes or the app you use to listen to this podcast and do share it with your friends if you know anybody that is suffering from irritable bowel syndrome and might like to learn a little bit more about it and what an underlying cause could be it would be great if you could share it with them and you can follow us on facebook instagram Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, Pinterest, and Google+. Just look for us under The Healthy Gut. Now, over the last couple of weeks, I've been telling you that the SIBO coaching program is coming, and I have opened up registrations for people to tell me that they're interested in learning more. I do only have a limited number of places on the coaching program, so if you think this is something that you would benefit from and you haven't yet registered your interest, make sure you head to thehealthygut.co forward slash interest. There's no obligation to sign up to the program at this stage. All it does is let me know you're interested in learning more. Coming up on next week's show, we're joined by Dr. Jason Klopp, who has developed the CLEAR protocol, C-L-E-A-R, and he uses it to support his SIBO patient's return to health. It's a fascinating chat with Dr. Jason Klopp. I'm sure you will find it really beneficial as well. So stay tuned next Tuesday for that interview on episode 20. You've been listening to the Healthy Gut Podcast with your host, Rebecca Coombs. To learn more about the Healthy Gut or our podcast, head to thehealthygut.co forward slash podcast. 
And as we are fully funding this podcast, if you would like to help support the continuation of this podcast so that we can continue to bring you future episodes, all you need to do is make a contribution at thehealthygut.co forward slash podcast. We would like to thank Belinda Coombs for the production, editing and original music score of this podcast. To hear more of Belinda's music, head to soundcloud.com forward slash Belinda Coombs. The Healthy Gut Podcast is a production of The Healthy Gut. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.